Alright, welcome back to Art Holes. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has zero authority to speak on these topics. Uh, and yes, I'm speaking in the singular. Uh, I've got bad news. Uh, Mitch is no longer going to be with us. He's got an absolutely jam-packed schedule, so it's just going to be me sitting in my living room closet, breathing in my own recycled carbon dioxide, and sweating a whole bunch. But I am, uh, I'm kind of a deep Googler, so this little project has become a pretty productive outlet for that. And instead of continuing to try to shoehorn the, the, the topics into discussion with friends, I figured this would be a good outlet to get this all out of my head. When we last left Picasso, he fully quit his drug habit and was pushing out of the Blue Rose period into something more lively. Max Jacob, his Hensbane ether buddy and old roommate, he's about to introduce Picasso to a guy named Guillaume Apollinaire, who was another writer-literary kind of guy. Here's what we have to remember. Back then, entertainment was different. There was no YouTube, Netflix. Before smartphones and digital entertainment, people consumed the shitload out of the written word. People used to do this crazy thing called reading, and they did it for fun. So writing jobs could be some weird fiction pamphlet of short stories, political critiques, uh, a startup magazine, books. And, And unlike today, when we have just way too much stuff out there to choose from, the demand was almost always greater than the supply for for quality writing. And in the early 1900s, we are smack in the middle of an era called La Belle Epoque, which which started after the Franco-Prussian War ended in 1871 and lasted until the beginning of World War I. It was a period of time in Western history where the arts, music, theater, literature, everything was booming. So if you could sling the written word and be edgy and interesting, people fucking loved you. And Apollinaire, he was just that kind of guy. Apollinaire had a weird backstory, and it changed depending on who told it. We're not going to get too far into it because it's very confusing. There's like 15 different versions, and mostly it's him just being full of shit. The real story seems to be that Apollinaire's mother was born into a random branch of the Polish nobility, and she was incredibly rebellious. She was not going to play that stuffy nobility role, which probably included a bunch of incest and a very large assortment of wigs. So when she met a traveling gambler who she thought was very handsome and charismatic, she just took off with him and left, and eventually had Guillaume and later another son. Apollinaire's parents didn't really let having kids get in the way of being weird, traveling, card shark type people. So they farmed the raising out of the kids to other people and would just send back money when they could. So with nobody at home to give him any affection or attention, he turned to roaming the streets and spending a ton of time in libraries and bookstores. He was, he was an upper crusty kind of a guy, but he was more in the fringes and he still needed to hustle. Apollinaire would eventually begin a budding young career as a, as a writer of late 19th century erotica. Basically, he wrote really detailed and aggressive porn. Uh, one of his books is called The Debauched Hospador, which is, is an incredibly hard-to-find book, and I, and I realized later that's probably for the best. The Debauched Hospador is about a Romanian lord who explores Paris in all aspects of his sexuality, including masochism, ondanism, well, I had to look that one up, that's, that's pee stuff, scatophilia, poop, vampirism, gerontophilia, I had to look that one up as well, that's having sex with really old people, pedophilia, necrophilia, and multiple snuff scenes. It's a real pain in the ass to get, uh, but there are a few copies floating around Amazon that you can get from third-party vendors. Uh, And there's also oddly a lot of copies available in libraries around Australia, which I I feel like we need to have a talk with Australia about that. 
I was actually planning on buying a copy and then doing like a, a dramatic reading of some excerpt of some gross part of the book for the show. Uh, but, but then I realized I didn't want to read 127 pages of a, a Romanian guy with a rock hard dick taking a shit on a bunch of 12 year olds. I don't need that kind of Thursday, especially not for $22. You guys probably don't want that kind of day either. And also, I don't really need to be added to anybody's watch list. But what I did see that I wanted to share was a, it was a one-star review from a verified purchaser on Amazon. And this may be sexist, but I think we can safely say the purchaser of early 1900s French erotic novels was probably a woman. I mean, if you said somebody had a bunch of Pornhub windows open to the same kind of stuff while just white-knuckle bracing a coffee table and jerking off into a dirty t-shirt, I'd safely bet it was a guy. So maybe this poor woman was just intellectually interested in La Belle Epoque Parisian eroticism, or, or maybe she was reminiscing about a wild trip, you know, two weeks in Paris where she met Gerard, who was, who was a breath of life, but also very guarded and reserved. But he was such a generous, generous lover. Though uncircumcised, she wasn't really prepared for that, but, but that's, that's totally fine. And with old Parisian music playing in the background, and likely what is a cup, a hot cup of chamomile tea, Quote, I picked this up with a few other erotic novels of its time, including another by this author. The sex in this book happens without reason, and the gratuitous violence is unfathomably cruel. I was taken aback when, in the beginning, bloody cuts from beatings and bodily waste were added to the erotica, but this is just the tip of a huge iceberg. This book has no vanilla, loving, or gentle encounters. At least three times a person is killed during intercourse. The ages of the sexual participants range from the very old to the extremely young. I won't lie, this book nearly made me sick to my stomach. I struggled to finish it. There's more, but that's the gist. Uh, my favorite part of the entire thing was how she snuck in that she finished it. I think when you hit the first elderly scat group sex scene and you keep going, it might be a thing you're into. And, and you know what? Read and enjoy whatever you want to, but thou doth protest too much. At one point, this book would be brought before the European Court of Human Rights for violation of a Turkish criminal code when somebody in Turkey decided to publish it, and a judge once referred to it as, quote, a smear of transcendental smut. Anyway, back to the story. By the time Apollinaire met Picasso, he was an established writer and critic beyond just the porn, but he was still definitely writing a lot of porn. In the literary and art world, this meeting, the, the convergence of these two, would turn out to be very important. This is when Hall met Oates, when Kid met Play. This is, this is monumental. It's when a purveyor of transcendental smut meets a narcissistic young artist who maybe has troubles with women. Picasso and Apollinaire met in October 1904 on Rue Amsterdam. Apollinaire was standing with two black women wearing matching enormous plumed hats and crazy outfits and a short fat, red-headed guy named Mr. Fripp. Picasso and Max Jacob walked up, and Apollinaire didn't even skip a beat as he continued this very detailed analysis of the difference between German and English beers. He took one look at Picasso and Max Jacob, gave them a sly little wink, and kept talking. And Picasso thought that was just absolutely too damn smooth, and he was immediately sold on Apollinaire, and the two became instant friends. Apollinaire introduced Picasso to the Marquis de Sade, which is an influence uh, I, I think our boy probably does not need right now, but he encouraged Picasso to abandon his Andalusian love of sadness and suffering and to pull completely out of the blue period and to just liven things up in his art. 
It's generally thought that both his introduction to Apollinaire and quitting drugs were the two main things that brought Picasso fully into his next consequential art period, his Rose period. The Rose period used a lot more reds and pinks, hence the name, but it was also more fun, warmer, not something that would depress the holy hell out of you if you put it up on your wall. Max Jacob and Apollinaire would take Picasso and their whole crew, and they would go to see a ton of these carnival performers, actors, musicians, and and they love going to the Cirque Madrano and meeting all the harlequins and clowns. And I've got to be honest, I I really hate clowns. I, I also judge people who like clowns. I think there are the same types of people who would think fireworks are exciting and enjoy parades. Fireworks, parades, and clowns. It's just the trifecta of useless entertainment. However, only one of these things is a middle-aged man who conceals his face with makeup and wants to hang out with other people's kids. We should be flagging, not encouraging this behavior. I get that clowns had their place, but that time has passed. Kids do not need balloon animals anymore. You are not cheating your child out of some amazing experience. There is other stuff to do. Also, full disclosure, I saw the movie Killer Clowns from Outer Space when I was about seven, and I was way too young to understand that it was a comedy, and I cried a real lot, and there may be some sort of residual trauma here. And I'm going to dig my heels in a bit, and I'm going to play a scene from the movie to illustrate my point. I think if you take away the comedy aspect of clowns, which there is no legitimate comedy in clowns, they are terrifying, and they do not need to exist. In this scene, a very young, 1980s-looking deputy with very feathered hair, walks into his chief's office to tell him about the killer clown invasion. And imagine a giant scary clown sitting behind a desk with the town police chief propped up, sitting on his lap, and the chief has on ventriloquist dummy makeup. And the clown's hand is obviously buried deep into the police chief's back, and the clown is making the police chief talk using his own spine, which I grant you is kind of hilarious now. Uh, That's kind of great, but not so much when you're seven. Don't worry, Dave. All we want to do is kill you. See? There is absolutely nothing hilarious about that. And... Picasso hanging out with clowns, ridiculous, ridiculous clowns. This may seem weird now, but Harlequins, the circus, all of that clown performer nonsense was enormous back then, and people absolutely loved it. And to make myself feel a little bit better about my visceral reactions to the clowns in this episode, and there is a ton of clown stuff, I did a little bit of research to find other bad decisions people made back then, just to illustrate my point. In 1898, pharmacists first started giving out heroin, touting it as a miracle drug that would wean people off of addiction. Heroin. This went so far uh, that a charity group would suggest mailing morphine addicts free doses of heroin to help them out with their recovery. They're basically trying to Amazon Prime smack. And also, by 1900, x-rays were being used to treat acne and for unwanted hair removal. We were dosing people with radiation to remove slightly denser-than-desired arm hair. So yeah, people hung out with clowns. That doesn't make it a good idea. After the circus, everyone would go consume a bunch of liquor at La Lapina Gilles, which is the cabaret and bar that was the successor to Le Zoot that we mentioned before. Lapina Gilles was packed with mice, a tame crow, a donkey named Lolo, and a monkey. And sadly, we do not have the monkey's name. 
at first, I, I, I think I had a problem with how dirty that must have been and the smell. Uh, but then I realized how much I dislike other people when I'm out at bars. So maybe a donkey and a monkey would be a solid alternative, and I could probably get down with that. Picasso was also settling into life at the Bateau Lavoir, and his new obsession with carnies and harlequins that started to creep into his art, which I was excited to hear about, obviously. A lot of his paintings during the Rose period time are of Pierrot's saltambanks, which are, which are different kinds of clowns. Picasso was also creating a lot of Harlequin family scenes. The, the dad dressed up as a clown at home with his wife and child. It was a, a behind-the-scenes kind of painting, the, the, like the domestic life of the actor. Even in the clown imagery, he was still sending messages to women within his art. We talked before about the maternités, the mother and the child paintings he used to make for Madeleine. Now he would do things like make the Harlequin himself, and the wife very clearly was Fernand, and she was smiling contently and happily nursing or holding a baby. And I'll, uh, I'll post an example of one of these scenes. But what Picasso knew was that after the miscarriage she had with her rapist ex-husband, Fernand found out that she couldn't get pregnant again. He was painting those images just to fuck with her. So we're seeing the beginning of a theme. Like, I think there's a level of narcissism happening here where he feels free to punish women and gloat that they're unable to pass on, like, his genes. Like, how shitty must you feel that you can't have my kid? One of Picasso's most well-known Rose Period paintings is called The Family of Saltambanks. Uh, I'll post that up to Instagram as well. If, if, you, if you need to know of a painting, an iconic painting from the Rose Period, it is this painting. This is one of his, one of his masterpieces from that era. You obviously know what I think about it. I think it's a creepy painting of clowns, and I think it looks like a family of methal carny murderers. What's not seen in the painting are all the bodies of the unsuspecting travelers who came through the area to stop and ask for directions. But a few episodes, we talked about needing to think of Picasso as a fully formed adult. Now I think we need to talk about Picasso officially as a professional artist. Not doing that well financially, but he's selling enough art to get by. And while he's still poor, as is everybody at the Bateau Lavoir building, there was almost an internal lending and finance system within the building. All of the artists would lend each other money or food just to help one another get by month to month. Only Picasso was the only one who never paid anybody back. If y'all don't give me my motherfucking money, somebody gonna die. And I, and I totally forgot. I realized what the Bateau Lavoir makes me think of. Uh, it reminds me of the apartment building that Nino Brown turns into a crack house in New Jack City. Only it's smaller in French and it does not have Mario Van Peebles. But since Picasso is now a professional artist, I had to figure out how that whole process worked. I had no clue how art was bought or sold back then, so I did a little bit of research. And from what I can gather, here's what's happening. And this may be like 75% correct, but you're listening to art holes. You've given up your right to a 100% easy explanation in exchange for banana dildos, weird drugs, and Manolo. Generally speaking, as an artist, you can submit your painting, sculpture, whatever, to exhibitions, which are these like large competitions and display events where attendees can buy them if they want. You can also find a private gallery who would be willing to almost subcontract you uh, and put your art up in his or her store for either a base salary or commissions, which it was then sold to general retail buyers. Or if you were very talented and very lucky, you could find a very wealthy person who would be your art patron and dealer. Somebody who really knows you and your art, but also runs in the more you know, fancy circles, knows people with money, knows their tastes, and, and can match up artists with rich buyers and collectors. And that's the one, Marvin. That's the silver tuna. 
which is why we need to talk about American author, activist, and overall badass Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein was born in Allegheny, Pennsylvania to a wealthy real estate family. She had brothers, but we only really care about her younger brother, Leo. They're very close. The family bounced around Europe for a while and eventually landed in Oakland, which is a fantastic place to end up after you've been in Europe for a while. Gertrude's parents died young, and they left the kids with a lot of money. But instead of being lazy, she enrolled in Radcliffe University, which was the all-female affiliated school to Harvard, where she enrolled in one of the country's first psychology programs. Gertrude then enrolled in the John Hopkins School of Medicine until she left in her fourth year. She was just not interested in being a doctor. She would eventually move to Paris in 1903 with her brother Leo, presuming leaving the other brothers back in Oakland. And because she absolutely, her and, and Leo really just adored art, and because the Montmartre district was the art center of Paris, she and Picasso eventually fell into each other's orbit. Gertrude Stein was also openly gay and did not give a good goddamn who knew it. She would later become the first person to use the term gay to mean not heterosexual. It was in, in a short story about two lesbians named Miss Fur and Miss Skeen, uh, which was published in Vanity Fair in 1923. She actually took the, the carefree definition of the word and kept using the word gay over and over again in a way that implied a, a, non-sec, a non-heterosexual relationship. So it was sort of like a, um, like everybody wants to be gay. This is how we're gay. We're gay together. We're gay out on the lawn. We're gay in the back of the car. And sometimes when we want to be gay, but we're both really tired and it's late, so we decide it's better to just get some sleep and be gay tomorrow morning instead. Morning gay, we want to do that. And we don't really care what you people think about that. A lot of people use Picasso's close relationship with Gertrude Stein as evidence that he's not a misogynist, that he doesn't see women as less than or objects. But if you have to use the I'm not racist, I have a black friend argument, you are not standing on solid footing. I think one of the reasons why Picasso was able to allow himself to like Gertrude so much and treat her like an equal is because she was gay. I don't think he saw her as, and I'm using air quotes here before I get a bunch of emails, a real woman because sex couldn't get in between the two of them. I think he saw her as more of a man, which is problematic in an entirely different way. Plus, as we'll come to learn, he heavily relied on her for his success. Slowly, Picasso brought Gertrude Stein into his tertulia, and they began to have a very genuine friendship. I I don't want to act like he didn't care about her at all. He really did. Uh, The Steins would go to dinner with Picasso and Fernand, and and Picasso would paint Gertrude a lot. And, And that's actually very rare for him to paint a woman who he wasn't also having sex with. And in Paris, Gertrude and Leo Stein became very well-known art collectors and patrons. Uh, They became that uh, one category we talked about, the rich society people who loved art and would facilitate sales. They're, They're the silver tuna. The Steins were the first major Picasso collectors, but they weren't only supporting Picasso. They were also patrons to another up-and-coming artist in Paris at the time, Henri Matisse. I would characterize Picasso and Matisse uh, at the time as first-round draft picks in the Parisian art circles. They were very well aware of each other and actively competed against one another, and they both were obviously incredibly talented. And the reason why we talk about Picasso and Matisse at this time is that they were both looking to be early favorites as torchbearers for modern art moving into the 20th century in large part driven by the Steins. This is, this is Rocky and Drago. I must break you. At our point in the story, Henri Matisse was at the forefront of an art movement called Fauvism. 
Fauvism is a style where the artist uses a, a vivid, non-natural color scheme, and uh, it's, it's expressionistic rather than being a realistic or having a representational quality. Basically, it's the colors that drive the image. Uh, it's an art movement that had a very short window. It was, it was about a year, but people were super into it. I'll post one of Matisse's famous paintings from that time. It's called Woman with a Hat, uh, so everyone can take a look. It reminds me of an, uh, a painting an old couple would put up on their wall because it matched their couch, but what do I know? I guess if you've never seen anything quite like it, then it's pretty cool. Actually, I changed my mind. It's, it's probably beyond pretty cool. It's the first time you've ever seen, like, oh, he made her face green. That must have been absolutely mind-boggling for people. Again, people were super dumb back then. And in their rivalry, Matisse is, he's a much more down-to-earth, ordered, almost intellectual painter. While Picasso is, well, Picasso, he's a goddamn mess. But the two would actually spend a lot of time together critiquing each other's work, and it was actually a pretty fruitful competition. Eventually, Gertrude Stein decided she was backing Picasso moving forward, and Leo Stein decided to back Matisse. And, and this was actually a pretty smart play. The Steins were splitting them up and then stoking the competition between the two to keep them motivated. Oh, and I also forgot to mention that Gertrude Stein also developed the idea of stream-of-consciousness writing. I, I read that and I thought that was pretty fascinating considering I haven't invented shit, so I might as well bring that up. So where we are now is we have two heirs apparent who are on the cusp of ushering Western art into the 20th century. And I think at this point, Picasso was probably aware of his position and future. He may not be a huge commercial success yet, but it's just a matter of time. Picasso also begins to understand that he can't beat Matisse in a color war. Matisse's understanding of color as an artist was just off the charts. So Picasso has to come, he comes to a point where he needs to shift gears and come up with something different. And back to the more personal side of things, uh, in September 1906, Fernand officially moved into Picasso's studio, which made sense because she was basically held prisoner there so often, so why not make it full time? Fernand also began to make more and more of an appearance in Picasso's works, only it was mostly just her face. When he included her body, he would alter it to make it more like he wanted, more beautiful in his eyes. He would paint her taller, thinner, with longer legs, like a really nice passive-aggressive critique of her body that he was trying to sell to strangers and made, make money off of and be famous off of. The two fell into a domestic bliss that would alternate between explosions of rage and a silent irritability where he just wouldn't talk for long periods of time. He became incredibly possessive and would nitpick anything she did wrong, including her, quote, little ways. One time when Picasso was out and he locked Fernand in the studio, the studio above there is caught on fire. And she ended up being fine, and after the fire, Picasso really stepped back and said, oh wow, I can't believe that happened, and he changed absolutely nothing, and he continued to lock her in the studio every time he left. Another time, the owner of the Lapina Gil, who was a guy named Freddy, uh, I don't know if I mentioned his name before, but it's Freddy, uh, he shot and wounded somebody who broke in. And word immediately got around that Freddy shot a guy. So all the Bateau Lavoir crew, all the Lapine Agile regulars, they all went to get a glimpse of the drama. And Fernand couldn't resist either. So she found a way to escape the studio slash prison and went down to check it out. And Picasso was also there. And imagine his surprise that Fernand was out in public without him. 
So to properly voice his displeasure at her disobedience, and in front of all of those people, he hit her in the face. But are we really surprised? I mean, just to take a step back, I, I feel like this is just confirmation of what we all thought was happening or was bound to happen at some point. At this time, Apollinaire also convinced Voyard, he was the, the, the gallery owner, the, the really well-known gallery owner, to take a second look at Picasso's work. And this is, a, this is one of those hard examples of we see the literary society people in their tertulia using their influence to prop up the artists. And Voyard ended up buying 20 paintings for over 2,000 francs. And for our younger listeners, the pre-Euro currency situation was a goddamn debacle. If you were on a trip, you'd end up with random money from countries and not be able to use it in others, and it was really annoying. And it also makes losing 75 euros to gypsies in a card game hurt more because you can buy more with it. 2,000 francs was, it was a pretty good amount of money back then, and I tried my best to figure out the currency exchange rates. Uh, it was tough because at that point, the U.S. dollar was pegged to gold, so you had to do a gold conversion and then convert the currency that doesn't exist anymore into dollars, and I'm, but I'm ADD and I did it anyway. Best estimate I can come up with is around $108,000 in today's money. And if that's wrong, uh, too bad, I don't care, I'm not a goddamn economist. Everybody else in the Paris crew was also starting to do well. Uh, Max Jacob is becoming more recognized as a talented writer and critic, and Apollinaire went back to straight-up writing porn because it sold way better and it was an outlet for the weird shit that was inside of his head. Better on paper than to force a prostitute to do it. But now that we have a sense of where our central characters are, we should probably take a few minutes right now and talk about the state of art at the turn of the century. Uh, I, I needed to look this up for no other reason than I had no idea where this story stood in the context of art history generally. Like I said early on, I knew Picasso's name and that the paintings had a bunch of messed up faces, but I knew nothing. I actually thought the guy was French when I first started this. The beginning of the period that would be called modern art started in the 1860s and it extended to around 1970. Anything after that would generally be called postmodern or contemporary art. And the reason why people call that period modern art was because the artists around them began to throw out the techniques and the ideas that dominated the more classical art styles. Artists would begin to experiment with abstractions, and they'd use different paint applications and techniques, and they'd play with color. And again, this is just my idiot brain trying to grasp what was happening. I think in the 15th century, if you painted a still life of a bowl of fruit or a portrait of a person, you would do your damn best to make sure that bowl of fruit and person looked real. You'd try to capture the images as they were. It was very representational. But as modern art developed, you wouldn't try to paint a perfect image of, say, a person. You would, you would try to abstract, stylize, you know, to say an additional thing about that image. You'd paint the person in a way that was a uh, reflection of your insecurities, desires, visual cues that you as an artist thought were more or less important, or a, or a statement about the world. And I feel like that makes sense historically, because at this point, photography was becoming more and more mainstream, and image quality was getting better and better. So if you wanted a bowl of fruit, take a picture of a bowl of fruit. Now, art needed to bring something else to the table to stay in demand. The early trailblazers of modern art were Vincent Van Gogh, and yes, there's definitely going to be a series on him, and the ear is legitimately the most boring part of his life. And it also included artists like Mary Cassatt and Paul Gauguin. Van Gogh and Gauguin were considered post-impressionists, and I, and I did just some quick research on impressionism to get a, a sense of what it was, and it's a, it's a style of painting that was still representational, 
but the paintings wouldn't have a clarity of structure. They were, the artist would often use small brushstrokes to create a feeling or an experience of a scene. It's sort of a fuzzy, dreamlike, and it's an impression of the image rather than the image itself. The post-impressionists were something different than the impressionists. They were, they were moving the art world towards something, but nobody was really sure what yet. And Picasso was digesting all of these styles and was trying to come up with something all of his own. He was also becoming more and more influenced by Paul Gauguin. I don't want to go too far into Gauguin because he's getting his own series for sure, but we need to get a little bit of an understanding to get a sense of what was stewing inside of Picasso's brain. Paul Gauguin was a French artist who was active during the mid to late 19th century, and for about 10 years before he died in 1903, Gauguin was living in French Polynesia in the South Pacific, and he's living exactly the life you'd think a comparatively rich white European settler would be in the late 1800s. So let's take a brief trip for a minute and get a little bit of background on French Polynesia. Just imagine how beautiful it was back then. Black sandy beaches, beautiful lagoons, warm weather. It is a tropical paradise. So let's see what happens when the Europeans find out about it. The first European to reach Tahiti, the largest of the islands, was a British guy named Captain Samuel Wallace, who landed in 1767. And as soon as Wallace got there, he started firing cannons at the native people and destroyed their homes and canoes. But let's be honest, there was no way that wasn't going to happen. And after decades of violence, forced religious conversions, and intra-European conflicts over the islands, the French officially took over in 1842 and named it French Polynesia. And what we've got to remember is that before World War I, the world was a very big place. We were unbelievably less connected and informed. And of course, there was global commerce and the spreading of ideas, and, and most people were generally aware of each other. But advancements in technology in World War I, like better ships and stronger forms of communication, would make for a much smaller world moving forward. So at this time, the world is, is aware of Tahiti, but it was considered this far off and almost mythical Garden of Eden. It's this fairy tale land with weird fruit and maybe some hobbits and some, some fairies running around. Nobody really knows. So in 1891, Gauguin first travels to Tahiti and sees this absolute beautiful paradise, full of people who look different, have a vastly different culture and idea for art. And Gauguin starts to paint the people of Tahiti, especially the young women, probably not a shock, and incorporated the Tahitian people and their artistic expressions into his own. Basically, he culturally appropriated the shit out of everything and then got creepy with it. He then moved back to Tahiti full-time in 1895 and was sending paintings back to Paris for shows, yards, places like that, which is where Picasso encountered his work. Gauguin's style of art became known as primitivism, and we'll learn more about primitivism down the road either when we pick our Picasso story back up or if we do a Gauguin series first. For now, let's call primitivism at best, at best racially questionable. I mean, let's start with the fact that it's called primitivism. That's immediately problematic. I'll put a Gauguin painting up on Instagram for this episode, uh, and that's at Art Hall's podcast, and just so everyone can get a sense of the style. Primitivism ends up feeling like a, a combination of cultural appropriation and almost this weird fetishizing of the perceived other. It would be like if Justin Timberlake had a concert, but he did it in like Al Jolson-style blackface, then immediately got off stage and started in interracial gangbang. Oh, it's gonna be me. So, it's a 
bit of a reckless analogy, but that doesn't make it untrue. And and you know what? That is as JT's God-given right as an American to do all of that. However, you can imagine people would have questions with that combination of activities and what your intentions were. And Picasso is in Paris just sponging up all of this primitivism stuff. And everything about this story gives me the utmost confidence that things are going to be fine. They're going to be fine. He's going to do with it a thing that is going to be best for everyone. And at this point in the story, we're going to put it down and move on to another artist so we can mix things up. But we're going to come back to the story soon. I told my sister that I wanted to break up Picasso into almost a seasonal format and interspersed chunks of his story throughout full stories of other artists. And she said that was a great idea if I like things that suck. People don't like to wait for things, so I'm only going to do this with Picasso. I, I do take constructive criticism. But while we're gone, Picasso's brain is this hurricane of Matisse and Gauguin, shadows of Van Gogh, a, a constant drive for excellence, a, a fear of ending up like Jose, a childhood of brothels, and like, like us, also an adulthood of brothels, too. And what's developing in Picasso's mind is an idea for a painting, a painting that would spark one of the most important art movements in the 20th century, eventually placing Picasso into the argument for the greatest artist of all time. And in the, the previous episode format, we were going to go view a painting uh, at a museum and discuss. The, the painting that I, I chose for this series was the portrait of Sebastian Hunier Vidal. But since it would just be me, I don't want to go stand in a museum and yell at a painting for 20 minutes around children and families and a tourist, and it's going to be very concerning. So I'm just going to post a picture of it for everyone to see. Uh, I emailed LACMA, and I think they said it's going back up sometime in 2019, so definitely go take a look. Uh, actually, everybody, go support your local art museums. If you're, you're, if you're bad at planning a date, this is you know for our single listeners out there, if you're bad at planning a date... Plan date number three to museum where you know there's Picasso. You're going to have a bunch of stuff to talk about, and you're going to find out exactly how weird that other person is. But I thought the portrait of Sebastian Hunier Vidal was a pretty good representation of how Picasso feels about women. Uh, in the painting, Sebastian is incredibly bright. He's detailed. It's almost effervescent. And she, she doesn't even get a name. It's just we sort of know it's a random prostitute, is just slopped up on the page. And I do live pretty close to LACMA, and I, I've seen the painting a few times, so I have a, a couple of notes from, from when I saw it. Uh, I thought it was incredibly depressing. I thought she looks like 1987 Tampa Bay, and I think Sebastian Junior Vidal looks like uh, a freaking Marvel villain. And I think she's probably thinking about what's going to happen after the painting is done, and, and I would have that face too. And lastly, he looks like he'd ask you to pick a safe word and then act like he doesn't hear it. So those are just my, my general thoughts on the painting. And, and here's a, a fun fact. In 2015, the painting was actually x-rayed while it was at LACMA. And the previous version that Picasso uh, made, he had painted a dog instead of a woman. So the painting became woman because not dog. And I, and I don't want to judge his artistic process, but you can imagine with everything that we know that it lends towards the idea that that might be a little bit concerning. All right, uh, and that's it. For those of you who've stuck around for four episodes, I, I cannot tell you how appreciative I am, uh, including our one listener up in Iceland. Uh, thank you, Iceland. 
Uh, you stopped after episode one, but that's cool. At least you gave it a shot. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, uh, the only thing I ask is that you scroll down in the app and, and please give the show five stars. It, it really does help get the word out. And with that, the uh, the next artist that I'm gonna that I'm gonna dive deep into is Jackson Pollock. And holy shit, you are gonna need to strap in for this one. This is a roller coaster, and it's pretty bananas from start to finish. Uh, if you're worried that these series are gonna be sort of the same thing over and over again, oh, this is this is next level. Uh, I guess that's it. Uh, thank you again, and we'll catch back up next episode.